listening to Fed by Ravens with Matt and Adam. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Adam. All right, we're ready to rock and roll today. It is day 33 and 34 of our Read the Bible in a Year adventure. All right. So where are we starting? Uh, We are starting in Job chapter 25 and going to chapter 32. All right. the blues for Job. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So Job has uh, just come out of an argument with, uh, who was the last guy? Eliphaz. Eliphaz. And then, so we're in 25? Yeah. So Bildad now is coming at him. Bildad, yeah, so Bildad kind of gives like a really short response. Isn't it nice when you get like the really short chapters in the yeah. Old Testament reading? You're like, I can do this. <sighs> okay. So, yeah, so... I don't know. When I was reading this, yeah. I kind of take it as Bildad's kind of like running out of things to say. He doesn't know what else to say. He's kind of been hearing Job. And in his little summary here, he's kind of coming to the realization like, I I don't think anyone can be righteous totally. Right. I think I'm kind of hearing you, Job, and what you're saying. But this is actually, doesn't, don't, wouldn't you agree, Bildad is actually saying some truth here yes no yeah he's like actually that's what i'm saying like yeah he's kind of hearing him and he's kind of actually saying like oh humans are just sinful because we're human we were born into sin and so yeah we're all even in front of god we're all going to be like unrighteous yeah perfect so you know way to go build that after destroying your friend he still doesn't comfort job but at least gets to it's like they get back to zero right and I mean, at this point, though, like as we see in Job's reply in chapter 26, Job is like, oh, really, Bill Dad? Thanks. Thanks for coming to that conclusion now. <laughs> it's true. After he does so many back and forths, you're finally now hitting this with me? Okay, cool, man. You're now going, you're right, Job, it's hopeless. Yeah. We're all sinful. Which is uh, purely the law, and it's pretty heavy. But Job replies, you know, the majesty of God is unsearchable. Yeah, so in the in the next I mean, he goes on for a while from chapter 26 to 31, but in chapter 26 to 28, I, I kind of see him Job is now like describing or telling his friends like this is who I see God is. Like this is who God is. Right. So like in chapter 26, he breaks down creation. Yes. And like he kind of gives like a whole another Genesis account, which is cool. Like they know the account. They're like these people are aware of the story of creation and he kind of breaks down the story of creation and says God is creator and just his creation is just like the outskirts of his glory and his power. And I do think what I like and really appreciate is it's how important it is for us to know the story, our creation narrative, Mm -hmm. because in times of suffering, it may be the only thing you have is to go, God created this, because there's a great verse in, in chapter uh, 27, I, th- I believe it's chapter 27, verse 3, where he says, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils and my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit, and he goes on. But the point for me was just recognizing God has breathed into me mm, and mm-hmm. created me, and that without giving the account of creation that Moses will, will give us later, it's all there. Job totally gets it. Yeah. And he believes it. And he's not questioning the creation account or who God is. 
And um, although he's suffering and he doesn't know why, he still has confidence. He won't abandon his confidence in the creator God. Yeah, so then in 27, I see him as looking to God, like, God will vindicate me. God is yes. my vindicator. Uh, and then he moves into 28. So many proverbial Yeah, so this is, like, again, like, I'm realizing, oh, this is why this is paired with Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. That makes sense. Uh, So in 28, he's asking, where is wisdom? Man cannot find wisdom, and he finally boils it down to God is the source of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And you can't can't get wisdom on your own strength. Mm -hmm. It must be given to you from God. And uh, he says, the price of wisdom is above pearls. Like, if you can seek, the wisdom of God is beyond knowledge mm-hmm. and beyond knowing. It's the application of God's knowledge to your heart. And it, it's immediately applied to the way you live. And so he's seeking that. And then we, of course, know that I think the Apostle Paul talks about Christ as our wisdom. Mm-hmm. Christ is the wisdom of God. The word of God is the wisdom of God. And so Job is getting to this place of recognizing completely, or at least uh, confessing and giving witness to the reality of our starting point yeah. and our ending point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in these three chapters, I realized, I was like, oh, he's just telling who God is. He's defining yeah. who God is in these three chapters as creator, vindicator, and the source of wisdom. And again, this is how we walk through suffering. Mm-hmm. We remember who God is. You have to go back and remember who God is uh, to be able to even move an inch forward or stand another second of the mm-hmm. day. This is how we pray. We remember who God is and we respond. And then in verse 29, he starts to give Job, or chapter 29, Job starts to give a summary defense. Yeah, so after just summing up who God is, now Job is going, now this is who I I am. am. Yes, that's right. And so we have 29 and 30 are kind of linked together. And so 29 is about, this is who I was before this happened. Right. And this is my, the things I had and the stature. And did you have a favorite phrase when Job? So chapter 29 is like, I was once a great man. I, Mm -hmm. I had the power to forgive the power to restore, to be generous. People respected me. They brought, I took care of the weak and the, the feeble. And I was like a father, king, savior. Right. And my, my favorite little verse is not because it has a deep meaning. I just liked how it was said. But he goes, um, when my steps were washed with butter. Oh, yes. Such a great, like, mm-hmm. butter, man. Like, yeah. my steps were washed with butter. <laughs> I would love those steps because <laughs> butter makes everything better. I, and, and so th- this is how he, you know, he's describing like the good the old blessing. days. Yeah. The blessing, the good old days. I mean, I personally liked, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and oh. made him drop his prey from his teeth. Like, he's like this... Justice warrior, uh, yes. social justice warrior, maybe? Yeah, breaking the fangs. That's so great. <laughs> but you get to chapter 30, and it just starts off, boom, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Anyway, it goes on. Now he's being crushed and humiliated and disdained by people who once needed him. Mm-hmm. Now they mock him. They uh, accuse him. They yeah. deride him, and he can barely handle it. Yeah. Uh, I do like when he's like, I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. Because I was like, whoa, an ostrich? Yeah. That's a weird 
reference, but ostriches have like this really weird howling cry at night. Do they? Yes. I did not know that. And so, so Job haunting. is like, I have this haunting cry at night. So he's comparing himself to crying out in the night like ostriches, which is weird. Yeah. Not a reference we would he immediately says, click. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God mm. has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. So like recognizing the clothes, the fine garments that were once a way of displaying wealth and blessing have now, you know, it's like how we feel when we wear a tie. Mm-hmm. Now they're constricting us and they're melting into the sores on his body. Ugh. And they, where they end and begin is in question and he's become like dust and ashes. Pretty, pretty graphic. But I think that... Um, if you've been familiar with the New Testament, this is this is almost exactly like Christ mm. on the cross, or what he you know how yeah, he says. Yeah, this is a good. He's left his father in heaven. Contrast. He's left all of his treasures in heaven, and now he's being mocked and despised and betrayed and beaten. Yeah, by men, by his brothers. So there is like a type of foreshadowing here. Yeah, I like that. It's interesting, you know? I never really had seen it. Like, if you had told me before we read this and said, oh, man, Christ is all about is all in Job, I'd be like, well, you might be searching a little bit, but I'm seeing it yeah, this time. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely, that's, that's a good point. The only difference is, in, in chapter 31, uh, Jesus doesn't make an appeal. He's quiet yes. before the, uh, the slaughter, whereas Job is making a final appeal because he's a man, he's not divine. And he's saying, what have I done? Like, if I have, I haven't committed adultery, mm-hmm. which ruins the community and the economic industry. Like, it has so many horrible effects. Um, by the way, that's where they get the, if you've ever heard of that computer program, Covenant Eyes. To oh, help, yeah, To yeah, help yeah. with guys looking at uh, naughty things on the computer. He says, uh, ver- here's your verse if you need it, you know, chapter yeah, 31. 31. Verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So he's, he goes on, not just in, in the area of lust, but in the area of justice and yeah, loving your neighbor. Yeah, he goes basically and, the whole law, yeah. like the Ten Commandments. He kind of breaks down in here. Again, the Ten Commandments are incipient. Yeah, they're not even, they have not been uh, formalized yet. Yep. But they're still known to the people. And that might be the word of the day for us, for our people. Incipient. It hasn't quite happened yet. It's yeah. brewing. I mean, it has happened, but it hasn't been uh, codified or written mm-hmm. down. But you can see the law, the Ten Commandments on the heart of Job well before they're codified. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, so he goes through. He hasn't done violence. He hasn't coveted. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't lied or cheated. Like, he hasn't, he's like, I haven't done any of these things. And if I have, curse me. Right. He's calling down a curse on himself. But by the end of it, the idea I got was. If anyone, like Job is saying, if anyone could be justified by works, it's me. Mm-hmm. I've done right. But what Job knows is um, I can't be justified this way. And so I don't know how to be justified. And only the word of God will be able to reveal to me how I can be saved. You know? I don't, it doesn't say that, but that's where I'm, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, so in this final plea, he is kind of like laying everything out like he's trying he is trying i feel like he is trying to kind of justify himself going like yeah look i've kept all the law i don't know how else what else i can do right because he's still like they're still trying to figure out like why is this happening but that's where i would say that's where we all get to we do our best we fall short and we we suffer the consequences of evil in the world and our Mm -hmm. own sin and when we search ourselves we may not 
find it, but we need the scriptures to even reveal um, salvation or even how we've done wrong, you know, or, or mm-hmm. maybe in this case, it's not, um, I need God to reveal what I've done wrong. I just need to know how I, can I be saved? Yeah. And that's where he calls out to the God, the creator of all things. Um, that's where we end it in his final appeal, right? He's kind of just saying, what's the last verse there? He's, Oh, he cries out. He's, he says again, if the land has cried out against me, then curse me. Yeah. That's his final. The land, people, and God, he's being cursed. He feels like he's, God has turned his back, and now the land has turned its back. Mm-hmm. What's left for him? Right. And then, surprise guest, I forgot all about little Elihu. Yeah. There's a fourth friend. Yeah, he's just sitting there. Apparently, he's the youngest of all of them, so he wasn't even referenced because he wasn't going to talk. Yeah, which makes sense. But he, everyone's now just silent. Yeah. Job's silent. The friends are silent. And there's this anger burning in him. He, he bubbles over. He even is compared to, um, like, the gases in, a, in the wine that need to be Oh, like, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, I've had enough. <laughs> and uh, he's very upset at both. He's, so he's, been, he's the younger guy. Yes. So, okay, we got um, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Mm-hmm. And then little Elihu shows up now in chapter 32, mm-hmm. and he's like, enough. Mm-hmm. Jo- Job, you are trying to justify yourself, and friends, you're trying to accuse Job. Right. None of this is comforting. None of this is helpful. But do we know if Elihu even has the answers? We do not know yet. He's just setting up his argument in verse or chapter 32. So we're going to get into his argument uh, in the next section. Next time. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. What will Elihu do? Right. Will he help Job or hurt Job? Or will he be a nothing? Stay tuned <laughs> for next time on the Old Testament reading. We'll cover it on day 35 and 36. Woo-hoo. All right. Now let's move on to our New Testament reading for day 33 and 34. We will be, uh, I'll let Matt tell you what. We're covering because I got to play the song. Thank you. We're in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33 through chapter 22. All right. Matthew chapter 21. So we are still in the week of Jesus' triumphal entry. So when he enters, remember, he enters in Palm Sunday, and he's only going to live for another week after that. Mm -hmm. So Matthew... Uh, is very interested in that week leading up to crucifixion, resurrection. And uh, Jesus, right from the beginning, cleans the temple, curses the fig tree, challenge, his authority is challenged. He gives the parable of the two sons. The parable of the, well, now, the tenets is where we're at today, right? Yes. So I just want everyone to know, we're still, he's talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's come and announced that he is Messiah. He's received worship. And he's met by the people who should understand. The experts should totally get it, but they don't. Mm. They become blind. Right. So he has been challenging their authority. He's establishing that they have now become a mountain that is in the way from letting the gospel go out into the rest of the world. And by the way, that's been very helpful in the last couple of days as I've been praying. And I think um, I I ask sometimes that I would have the faith that could move mountains. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going, oh, the faith that can move any any like mountain that's in my way to God, move it. Right. And that the mountain where God met with us is now moved. 
and it's in Jesus Christ. So my faith has moved all um, barriers between or geographic location or anything that's in my way. I have total access to Jesus because of my faith. Mm. Like move the mountain. Faith can move mountains. Finally, I get it after all these years. <laughs> I just love it. I always thought it was so arbitrary. Like, why do I want to move a mountain? Mountains are beautiful. And it's like, well, you've never had to walk around one <laughs> and, uh, or thought that oh, God could only meet you there. So he is slamming the Pharisees, though. And uh, the parable of the two sons was intended to slam them because right. they're little crybaby kids that are disobedient. But then the parable of the tenants, the next two parables are very uh, succinct and harsh. And very, yeah. But it's not even going to be the harshest thing he does. But let's get into it. So, the yeah. parable of the tenant. Yeah, parable of the tenants. We have an, another comparison of the master of the house plants a vineyard. He sets it all up and then he hires people to share crop it for him. Like, yeah. you take care of it. And then when I show up, I will collect my percentage. You keep what you need. And that's how it'll work. And so he goes off. The tenants take control. And then he sends his servants to go finally when the season of harvest is upon them. And they see the servants, and it says they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So, okay, so then I'm surprised the master didn't get furious at that, but he's like, all right, that's a mistake. I'm going to be loving. Again, he sent other servants, and they did the exact same Mm -hmm. thing. So times two. Right. So finally... Notice how the master, and we we get all of our interpretation off Jesus' explanation of, remember, he explained the parable of the wheat Mm -hmm. and the tares. Right. And so he made very clear who the master was, who the reapers were, what the land was, all that stuff. who the servants, yes. So finally, he sends his son and Mm -hmm. figures they'll respect my son. Right. But what occurs to them is that, oh, we could kill the son and claim the inheritance as our own. Yeah. It's ours. So this is the story. And then Jesus asked the question. He says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he'll do to these tenants? And so Jesus doesn't even say the answer. Right. He, they say. He allows them to answer the question, which he's, they say. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of, in their seasons. And what's amazing is this is the Pharisees responding, right? Right. Like they're the geniuses and they're giving the answer of judgment on themselves, but they're too blind to recognize it. Right. Amazing. Like they're telling the story. Right. And so it's so easy for us today to go, why does God judge anybody or why? Well, because you've killed all of his servants and his son Mm -hmm. and you still don't understand. Even you would say- And you still think you're righteous in it. Right. And you still think you have a chance- of being saved, even though you would answer the question, man, the master should kill all those people. Right. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy town. Yeah. And yet the people of faith are crazy? I don't know. So Jesus breaks down the psalm, uh, Psalm 118, which he's like, look, the psalms predicted that this is what you would do. You would reject the stone. Right. You would reject me, and I will become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And... And so then, therefore, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Yeah. So he's taking it from the Jewish leadership and handing it out to the rest of the world. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, those mm-hmm. who call upon him mm-hmm. because we will give the fruit to Jesus. Right. Instead of trying to claim it as our own. And then he does reference that 
the um, psalm that he referenced at the end, he goes, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus is the stone, and they're breaking it, and it's going to crush them. They're going to be held responsible for killing the Son of God. They did understand this. The Pharisees heard this parable, and it says they perceived he was speaking about them. Right. Hey, is he talking about us? <laughs> and although they were seeking to arrest him, again, I love how they feared the crowds. Yeah, their powerlessness is completely evident. Yeah, and it's it's the same powerlessness that all of our authorities mm-hmm. claim today. Uh, because God did set up structures to govern, but it is under the authority of the populace a lot of times. Right. And God gives the authority, but the people, they're scared about, will I get votes? It's so great to have a king that doesn't care about votes. Right. It only cares about the authority of God. Well, he gives another parable, Matt. Yeah, so then in chapter 22, he moves on and basically gives a very similar comparative parable of the wedding feast. And this is where he has a king who's having a wedding feast for his son. And he sends his servants out to all the appropriate people that would normally come to this type of feast Mm -hmm. and tries to get them to come in. And they all say, oh, we're busy. We can't come. We don't want to. We've got other things. And they just go off and disregard the servants. He sends them out, I think, twice. Yeah. And then they seize the servants and kill them. Yeah. It's and the same thing. I it's think the same sends, story. I think he sends prophets and then he sends Jesus. It's like in all these parables, he sends twice, even though they killed the prophets and then they killed Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, he, and this time he sends them out and he says, "Just bring in anybody." Right. Then after, yeah. Then the third time, it's like, look, grab whoever is on the streets, anyone who's available, who wants to come, let them come, because the people who were supposed to be here don't want to be here. Which ties into Abraham's promise of it's for all nations. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a shame that they're rejecting this beautiful I mean, consummation. We're seeing like what Esau despising his birthright. Yeah, right. Like the first, the firstborn son is now despising the birthright. And they have better things to do. Mm-hmm. They're they're more hungry. Right. <laughs> for other things. Look, I'm hungry right now. Just just despises it. And but then the confusing part is uh, they bring in the guests, and there is a yeah, there's a guest who doesn't have on a wedding garment. Right. So in. In those days, when they had weddings, there would be special robes of celebration that everyone would have to wear. And usually the, uh, the grooms, host. the host, would provide all the clothing. Right. And so you basically are wearing the host's clothing to be there and be part of the wedding. Mm-hmm. And there's a man who is not wearing one of the wedding garments. And the king responds, like, at first, it's kind of strange Oh, this this passage boggled me for many years. Right. I just kind of overlooked it. Because for not wearing the right garment, in this parable, the king says to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Like, this is a seminal (laughs) verse about hell. And I'm like, the guy just didn't have on a suit and tie? Yeah. But what we realize is... Right. So the thing that's hitting me is this man is trying to make it in on his own righteousness. He's refusing the righteousness of the king. Right. Well, the master provides clothing. clothing, And he's like, no, no, I'm good. He's good. I can do it without. Which kind of insinuates, I want the benefit. I'll eat your food, but I'm not really putting myself 
under your authority or really care about this wedding. Mm-hmm. You just invited me in and I want what I can get. And so he casts him out because he was not wearing the righteousness of Christ. Right. Which is at the feast, at heaven, since Jesus brings up hell, we have to think a lot of this is about the wedding feast of the Lamb, mm-hmm. when we uh, the relationship physically, spiritually, emotionally is completely consummated. We begin to live with Christ forever and ever. And if we can't put on the righteousness of Christ, we can't be there. Right. And that's that. So right. again, the Pharisees are going, huh, <laughs> let's, we need to kill this guy. Yeah. Instead of let's listen to him and find uh-huh. out the right, what are the righteous robes? They ask, always ask the wrong questions. And so they can't just outright kill him because no. they are powerless. So they're trying to now trick him to say something that will condemn himself. So now they're like, all right, let's figure out what we can do to like make him lose face, either be in front of the people or have him say treason, and so we can get him up in trouble with Rome. Right. So the next three, really, interactions are all uh, attempts to trick him. Right. So the first one is about, man, let's get the Herodians, the king's people, yes. the actual Romans, to let's, let's try to humiliate him in front of them by making him admit that he doesn't pay taxes. Right. Perfect. Let's just get him to commit a crime. But Jesus responds. Right. So they're going, okay, uh, tell us what, what then you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because the Jews are, they're under Roman occupation. And, and they don't like it. And they don't like it. And so they're having to pay taxes to Rome. And so the people are already kind of like upset about it. And so he's, they're trying to get him to say, don't pay taxes. And then the Herodians are like, whoa, buddy. Or say, pay taxes. And all the people are like, what? You're supportive of Rome? But see, the Pharisees know there's a, a rebellious streak already in the people. Right. Because there's tax collectors. Right. And so they do it by force and they're cruel and you hate giving them taxes. So they have to go out mm-hmm. and get the taxes. And so surely anyone who's righteous says, man, we are under God. We're not under Caesar. Mm-hmm. And this isn't his place. And so, so they're trying to stir that up, like, oh, you think you're the prophet? Then surely you'll be like us and hate Caesar. Right. But let's befriend Caesar to manipulate, you know, it's all that. Yeah, no, so it's great. So he calls them hypocrites, which is great, because then he goes, bring me a coin. Yeah, he says, why do you put me to the test, hypocrites? Show me a coin. Okay. And, and the great thing about that is when he shows, when they grab a coin for him, it's like, look, you are already under Caesar. You have his coins in your pocket. Yeah, his little face is always upon you. Like, you are carrying an agreement in your pocket that he is ruling you. Yeah. Like, why are you... Okay. So then he does the classic, like, whose face is on the coin? Right. And they're like, Caesar's. He says, cool. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's been given to God what is God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him because, of course, the image of man, we have to put our image on everything. So mm-hmm. kings will put that on money or they'll put it on buildings. They'll put their face everywhere to remind you who's in control. And God has put his face and image on all of us. And so we belong to God. We bear the image of God. We yeah. give our lives to God. Give your little coin back to the guys whose face is on it. They marveled. They couldn't get him. But then they send the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are notorious for only uh, subscribing to the first five books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. We affectionately refer to it as the Pentateuch. Yes. It's written by Moses. And uh, that's what they believe. They stop when Moses stops. And as a result, they could not find the... Uh, the theological idea of resurrection. So they don't believe in the resurrection. When I first learned about this, I was 19 years old. I had, to, I was at a, um, a Bible college, and we learned it by going, the Sadducees don't believe in the res- resurrection, and that is why they're sad, you see. 
Wow. See what I did there? So they're sad because they have no hope after life. So they come after Jesus, and the Pharisees are sitting back going, this would be fun. Right. And to make a long story short, they said, um, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. Mm-hmm. So they take the words of Moses, and then they make a ridiculous scenario, hypothetical. Right. What happens if a woman's husband dies and dies again and dies again? Another one dies. Another one dies. Another one dies. And seven husbands. So who will she be married to in this so-called resurrection? Because right. they're mocking the resurrection. They don't believe in it. They think it's fake. And they're trying to show how absurd it is. Mm-hmm. But they were talking to the Son of God. Right. And uh, he smokes them here. Yeah, so he's going, uh, you're asking, you're thinking about it incorrectly, you don't even believe in this resurrection, and you don't understand what you're asking or saying. There is no marriage in the resurrection. He says, you know neither the scriptures nor nor the the power power of God. God. (laughs) Like, you guys are clueless, and you're so proud. Yeah, so then he goes. Yeah, that's so great. And so he does say, um, in resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has said to you, what was said to you by God? So now he quotes Moses yeah. in this. So well, he uses their guy, their scripture. Before you go there, let me just break down the, um, the line about angels. He's mm. not saying that we are going to become angels. Right. He's saying that, look, after death, our marriage vows have been completed. Mm-hmm. And so now we are in new agreements. Like there's, it's done. Mm-hmm. And so how we'll live in heaven is more like angels right. and the needs. So what we can gather from this is, you know, death annuls. Like this is why you have a will and testament and it, it finishes the marriage. You tell death do us part. Right. Um, but that's, so that's not the, uh, we're not becoming angels. We're right. like angels and w- doesn't deny that we'll be resurrected. The fact mm-hmm. that, uh, marriage ends in death. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then he goes on even more powerfully. So that's kind of the the first thing. Yeah, he's but like, then okay, he gets whatever. right to it. And yeah, so they're really trying to get him on the resurrection. Yeah. And so he says, he quotes Moses and says, uh, "This is what said was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living." One of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. The angel will say this uh, at Jesus' resurrection when mm. they show up. Yeah. He's not here. He's the God. Of, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And the way Jesus uses this here is to say, you believe in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. These are your boys. You believe in only the first five books of the Bible. And uh, you would agree that I would say, I am the God of them. Well, I how, can I, how can I yeah. be the God? The, the relationship between me and these people would... They're dead. Over. Yeah. It would be over if there was no resurrection. But how is it that God still says, I am the God of guys who are dead? It's because they're still living. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not the God over dead people. I'm God over living people. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they died a thousand years ago, are still alive, sucker. Yeah. Sadducees. You guys are sad. You don't even understand the first five books of the Bible. And yet that's all you study. How could you have missed this? I am the God of the living, not the dead. Boom. And then the, the crowd heard it and they were astonished. So yeah. then the Sadducees back away. They're like, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. So then the Pharisees are watching this going, oh, man, you just silenced the Sadducees. All right. We got to come up with something. Big guns. Let's do so, the big guns. So they get their lawyer, which is just someone who is an expert in the law right. of Moses. And he just knows it in and out. And so he comes at Jesus with, 
teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus Expert. is the son of the God. <laughs> son of God. Of yeah. God. Well, the God. Yeah. The God. Uh, I don't mind that. And Jesus says, uh, he answers. I just love how he never is constrained by their bad questions. No. What's the greatest? And he gives two. Mm-hmm. That's so perfect. That's <laughs> so perfect. And uh, because he's establishing the heart of all of this thing, mm-hmm. which is, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And this, in essence, does break the, um, it's the first table of the Ten Commandments is loving God, mm-hmm. having no other God before you, don't use his name in vain. The, uh, honor keep, the Sabbath. The Sabbath. And then the whole second table is about loving your neighbor, obeying your parents, don't commit adultery, yeah. lie, steal, cheat, covet. And But what's most amazing about this is that those two commandments are impossible. Mm. Like who loves God with all of their soul and all their mind? Do you think about God every day, everything you do? Nothing is ever mindless. Nothing is ever rebellious. Right. No. Do you ever, do you love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, without digging too deep, I can think about all the things I'm not doing for people who are in need right now. <laughs> now we try to hide from that, but the reality is the greatest commandments, we don't even need to break down what they mean. Right. You can't even fulfill them theoretically. And so they um, kind of realize that he's an expert. Right. And yeah, and this was also um, something the rabbis of that day would also agree upon. So, like, yeah. they're like, man, he just said He the, knows his stuff. He said the answer. All right. But then he says to the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So now Jesus is coming back with a harder, he's more of an expert than they are. Yeah. And they're going to look like fools about the one thing they know in life. So, yeah, it's great. So they've been on the attack for the first three rounds, and then finally Jesus flips it on them, and he goes, fine, I'll ask you a question. Yeah, and this is like the old video game Punch-Out. Oh, and yeah? I don't know if you remember the old game. Yeah. It was an arcade game, and it would go, when you had them against the ropes, it yeah. would say, mighty blow, mighty blow, and you hit the mighty <laughs> blow button, and it was like a monster haymaker punch. Nice. And so Jesus has been boxing with these guys. He has them against the ropes, and now it's time to give the mighty blow. Anyway, he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they go, um, the son of David. And Jesus says, right. Well, then how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies on your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he the son? And no one was able to answer him. From that day on, they didn't even want to ask him questions because what Jesus said is essentially, how is he a son of David and David's calling him Lord? Right. And how is he calling him God? How is he calling him God? And the answer is they don't know because they think the Messiah is only human. Mm. And so he's the son of David only. And Jesus says he's in the line of David, but David calls him Lord because he is the son of God, the anointed one of God, not just David. And they don't know if they believe that yet. Yeah. And they certainly don't believe he is the one. And they don't know how to dispute it. Because he just did something to their law that was uh, never understood or seen. You know what he did to the law, Matt? What did he do? He gospelized it. Ooh. He just dropped gospel all over their law. And they didn't know what to do. And instead of repenting, they just, they got, uh, they stuck their feet deeper and they're like, we, now we have to kill this guy because yeah. we can't humiliate him. We can't outwit him. We can't out-survive him. And he just humiliated us. Right. So that's, t- 
a lot going on there. Yeah. But it's going to even culminate to the next day's reading where, whoa, it's going to become even mm, harsher. I see what you yeah. did there. A little tease for the next, the next day's reading, but they're all connected. Anyway, praise God that we uh, see him as our Savior and see him as divine and human. I praise God for that. So let's move into our... Uh, our psalm. Beautiful psalm for the day. What is it, Matt? It is Psalm 18, verse 7 through verse 24. A lot of great things happening in Psalm chapter 18. Mm. But uh, the one that I remember from last year, there's a little part of it that I actually wrote down. And uh, reading it again, I was like, wow, has it been a year? And that still is beautiful. Mm -hmm. He says in... Chapter 18, verse 19, he brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I love that. Yeah. He rescues us, not because we've got ourselves in a mess and we need him. That's true. He doesn't rescue us out of obligation or frustration. The psalmist declares that he rescues us because he delights in us, because we are his kids. You've just been fed by ravens. Go in peace and serve the Lord. See you next time.